<clears throat> in our last meeting together, I asked the question, what if you knew beyond a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow, how would it affect your actions today? Today, I'd, I'd like to ask you another question, but before I do it, I want to tell you a true story. Uh, the Sunday school lesson uh, for the day was about Noah's Ark, so the preschool teacher in the Kentucky church uh, decided she wanted to get her small pupils involved in the learning process by playing a game in which they'd identify animals. And so she said, I'm going to describe something to you. Let, let's see if you can guess what it is. First, I'm furry with a bushy tail, and I like to climb trees. And all the children looked at her blankly, kind of like you look at me a lot of times. <laughs> she says, well, I also, she said, I also like to eat nuts, especially acorns. And yet there was still no response from these kids. He said, well, okay, um, I'm usually brown or gray, but sometimes I can be black or red. Nothing, not a response, not a hand, not anything. And so finally she looked at little Michelle, who was about four or five years old. And Michelle was the kind of pupil that every teacher wants in the class that will jump up with the answer right away. And so she said, Michelle, what do you think? And Michelle thought about it for a second, looked around at her classmates and said, Well, I, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds a lot like a squirrel to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I like that. Keep that in mind when I ask you this question as we come up. Several years ago, I came across an article by Charles Hummel, which he entitled Tyranny of the Urgent. We were doing a Bible study out of the Navigator's Materials, Colossians 2.7. It was a thought-provoking article, and its message is pretty, it was, it's uncomplicated, it's direct, it's uh, exactly to the point, and it packs a warning to all of us. And uh, in this article, as he looked back upon another year of activity, he came to the following conclusion that I'd like you to listen to very carefully. He said this, said, I have left undone those things which I ought to have done, and I have done those things which I ought not to have done. Several years ago, an experienced cotton mill manager said to me, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out that which is important. Says he didn't realize how hard this maxim hit. It often returns to haunt and rebuke me by raising the critical problem of priorities. Says we live in a constant tension between the urgent and the important. The problem is that the important task rarely must be done today or even this week. Extra hours of prayer or Bible study, a visit with a non-Christian friend, careful study of an important book, all of these projects can usually wait. But the urgent tasks call for instant action. Endless demands pressure every hour and every day. And soon we become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. Now let me ask you the question that I'd like to ask, and that is this. What is it that's important to you? Now, I know some of you, as you sit here, much like that young child in the class at that small Kentucky church, want to say the right answers. We're in a church group, and the right answer is, I know the answer must be Jesus, but I'm not so sure. Because as we ask ourselves the question, what really is important to me? It begins to prick at our conscience, so to speak, as far as what our priorities are. We know the right answer, and we know what we should say, but I want to ask you to be honest with yourself for a moment, and I want to ask you to ask yourself the question, what is it that really is important to me? I know the right answer, but you know what? Is that really what's important in my life? And as we consider this, we need to ask ourselves, what is our number one or top priority in life? How many of you have come to the conclusion at different times in your journey throughout this, this life that, you know, every now and then it's good to kind of take a stop, 
and pull over to the side of the road and ask these kind of questions. How many of you ever done a personal inventory of your own life? Raise your hand. Good. For those of you who haven't, you need to slow down and do it. Because it's important that we recognize, you know what, not always are the things that we're so busily doing, are they really the important issues of life. They're really not the priorities, though I ask the question and we know the right answer. Many of us, if we were honest, we would say something totally different. No, that's not what's important to me. This is what's important to me over here. And uh, fortunately for us, the church in Thessalonica was asking themselves the same question. In fact, the issue became so troublesome to them that they sought answers and direction from the Apostle Paul through Timothy and Silas. They took them a list of questions that were bothering this new group of believers in this church in Thessalonica, and they asked the question, what really is important? And if you recall from our last session together, they understood that Jesus would return soon. And this group of people wanted to make sure that they were ready for that day by doing that which God felt to be important today. Again, it goes back to if you knew beyond a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow, how would it affect your actions today? And so we wrestle with doing those things that are urgent, but those things that are urgent often aren't even that important. But they're the things that demand most of our time. And so this church at Thessalonica, this new young group of believers, wanted to make sure that, hey, we know Jesus is coming back. And because we know he's coming back, we want to be ready today, and we want to make sure that we're doing those things that God deems are the important issues of life. What are the priorities that we need to have in order to please God while we await this day when Jesus comes back? And so really what they're trying to do is get their priorities in order. And Paul commended them in the opening of this letter. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But if you recall, Paul commended them as being a, an ideal church. They were a group of people. They were an elect people chosen by God. And he was trying to comfort them with that truth by saying that, you know what, basically it comes down to this. Whom God chooses, God never loses. I like that. It helps me to remember it. Whom God chooses, God never loses. And it was comforting to them to know that, hey, you know what? God has chosen you and called you out of the world of people. Like I, the illustration I gave, the world full of people that are walking in this direction. The Bible says the world is a rebellion against God. That we've all sinned and gone, gone astray. That all of us are like sheep have gone astray. There's none of us that are righteous. And so as God looks down on humanity, what he sees is a world filled with people who are all walking away from God. And God, from the foundation of the world, chose us as he called us out of this group who are going this way. And he called us and chose us and said, hey, turn to me and turn to Jesus Christ. And as we turn to God, we turn away from all those things that we were walking towards and walking among. And now we turn and we walk this way and we walk toward God and doing his will and the will of God rather than our own will. And so whom God chooses, he never loses. And these were people that were comforted by the fact that their choice was made by God and it was not made by themselves other than the fact they responded to the grace of God. And this is why so many of us are confused with the whole idea of, hey, can I ever lose my salvation? Well, you've got to understand something. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You responded to the grace and the mercy of God, and God chose you, therefore he holds you and keeps you and protects you, and you can't be lost to God. Whom God chooses, he doesn't lose. And it's important to understand that, and they were comforted by that. They were an elect chosen people. They were also an exemplary people. It says that they became examples to everyone around them. That they were an exemplary people that received the word of God and they responded by actions. They became imitators of Paul and of Jesus Christ himself and they walked in a way that was pleasing to God. They became enthusiastic people. The Bible says that the word rang out or they proclaimed the word of God. 
They reverberated. They were receivers of God's grace who then transmitted it to others around them. And, and they weren't confined to their backyards. I like this cartoon that I ran into. I think you might appreciate it. Because the church at Thessalonica was not confined to their own backyards. Their reputation and what had God had done in their life had spread throughout all of the surrounding countryside. I like these two little boys are talking. It says, my Sunday school teacher said I should follow Jesus, but I'm not allowed to leave the yard. You know, there's a conflict there, but we need to recognize and understand that, you know what? Hey, we are to follow Jesus, and we are to leave the backyard. We're to go out into all the world, and as we leave our homes and go to our offices, or leave our homes and go to the school, or leave our homes and go out to the athletic field, or leave our homes and go on vacation or a trip or a business trip somewhere around the country, or even around the world, we're to reverberate the message of God's grace as people see us and they see our actions, and they begin to ask themselves the question, what is it that's different about you? Why do you have such a peace and a security and a confidence? about who you are and where you're heading. Why don't you fear death? Why don't you fear a downturn in the economy? Why don't you have the fears like the rest of us have of the uncertainties of the world? And we can say because our hope is in God. Our hope is founded upon God. We've been chosen and called out of this world and God will protect us. And the worst thing that can happen to anybody in life is that they die. And that's the best thing that can happen to any of God's people because absent from the body, we're presence with God. I mean, we can't lose. So what do we got to worry about? What do you got to be concerned about? What do you got to be upset about? Hey, God, if God's for us, as the Bible says, who can be against us? That's a wonderful truth. They became examples to the world around them that God had changed their life. Whom God chooses, he never loses. Whom God chooses, he also changes. And there was a lifestyle difference as they began to look at these people. And the last thing that we saw was they were an expectant people. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. They were people who were expecting what? The return of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, And we were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. Hey, check this out too. That is Jesus who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the great truths of the Christian doctrine and the Christian faith is this, that one day God shall judge this world. The great wrath to come. They were taught this as young believers. They were taught one day God's coming back and he's going to judge this world for turning away from him in rebellion and walking away and going and doing their own thing. God will judge every human being for turning and walking away from the grace and the mercy of God. But only those who have received God's grace and asked Jesus Christ into their life for the forgiveness of their sins. sins. The Bible says this, that they will escape. We shall escape the great wrath or judgment to come. That Jesus Christ one day will judge this world and you and I, because he is our advocate or our defense attorney, will defend us before God the Father and say, they will not be judged because they believed and trusted in me. Isn't that wonderful truth? And so as they waited this expectation they had, Jesus is coming again and he's going to judge the world. But you know what? We don't have to worry about this judgment because we will, he will deliver us from the great wrath to come. We are delivered from our sins and the consequences of it by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Now as we go through this and we look at the, the second chapter, what he wants to get into are some priorities. And he's going to talk about four priorities for living, which basically comes down to this. Hey, you know what? As we expect and wait for this day when Jesus is to return, what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? Because like you, I am often confronted with the urgent demands of life, and sometimes I catch myself and have to stop and say, wait a minute, are, are these things really the important things of life? 
Why am I getting so hung up over here doing these things? In the long run, in the eternal view of God, do these things make any difference at all? And if they don't, i got to get back on track and back on course to do those things that are uh, priorities before God that have some sense of purpose eternally. Not short-term, but long-term view. And as we look at this, you say, hey, you know what, but how do you know that this is what he's talking about in this particular passage? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul lays out four priorities of living that will help us focus on the important and they'll free us up from the tyranny of the urgent. And I can be certain of this because listen to what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was what? Was not in vain. Our coming to you, we can know it. Listen, he says, you can know from an intellectual standpoint, and then we can also know something from an experiential standpoint. They knew intellectually that his coming to them was not in vain because they also experienced it as well. There was great change that took place in the lives of these people. As I just mentioned, these people were fired up and turned on, and they weren't walking and serving idols anymore. They turned and they began to serve God. There was stuff happening here. Lives were being changed, and it was exciting. And what Paul was saying was, hey, you know what? My coming to you people wasn't in vain, wasn't without purpose. Look at the results. The results were awesome. And so as we look at these things, he said that, hey, you know, in the short time that Paul spent with these people, it wasn't a failure to be there. It wasn't a failure to be there. Paul and the Thessalonians had no regrets as they looked back on this time period that they had together. It was time well spent, and it was time spent that would reap spiritual dividends. Isn't that exciting? And he declare, after he declaring this fact, you know, Paul then pinpoints these characteristics of his own life and his ministry in Thessalonica. And in doing so, he sets forth these four essential priorities for living that each one of us need to adopt as well. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 13. We read this. It says, For you yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a waste of time. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. It says, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. It says, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and into his glory. And for this reason we also constantly thank God that you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And as we go through this passage, he lays out four priorities for living. I want to take, take them one at a time, but the first one is this. Priority number one. 
Paul says that, you know, as he looks back over the weeks they were together, he reminds them of several truths, and I'm confident that there, he, he was constantly bombarded, like most of us are, with the urgent things in life, that there are a whole bunch of things that were going on that could have taken away from his specific purpose or priority in life. And uh, as Paul looks at all of these things, he said he made sure that his life and his ministry were firmly based upon what? The Word of God. Isn't that exciting? He says, you know, brothers, our visit to you wasn't a failure. It wasn't a waste of time. There was, we reaped some dividends and benefits. Why did we do that? Hey, you know what? Look what he says. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. As you know. But with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Paul and Silas had been beaten, humiliated at Philippi. And uh, the reason for it was because they shared the scriptures with those who would listen. And you can read about that account in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. And what's fascinating is, as they began to share the scriptures and the word of God with these people and anyone who would listen, guess what happened as the word of God went out? It didn't come back empty. As the word of God was shared with people, people embraced that. They received Jesus Christ, their lives were changed, and the whole town was thrown into a turmoil. And the reason for it was simple. There was a lot of opposition, and the opposition came because there were men who were there who were using a woman who had a spirit of divination. She could see into the future. She was a fortune teller. And uh, as Paul was preaching, this fortune teller was there distracting the word of God from being set forth. And so Paul turned to this particular spirit of divination and said, hey, get out of here. You know, you're in the way. You're bothering us. And all of a sudden, this woman couldn't tell the future anymore. Well, guess what happened? Everyone that was using her to tell the future to make money and bet on the football games and the baseball games and stuff like that and, you know, to see which way the stock market was going to go, they got upset because now they started losing money. And what was fascinating is, as you read throughout historically what, what has happened, when the word of God is preached, one thing usually happens. It, it, it definitely puts a, a cramp or a crimps the style of those who want to do that which is wrong before God. You follow me? See, what happened was, as these people in Thessalonica turned to serve the living God, guess what they did? They turned away from false gods. They turned away from idols. Now, you know, think about this for a minute. You're in the idol-making business. This definitely is bad for business. When you got people who are turning to serve the living God away from idols, you know, all those little trinkets and all that little junk that you have that you buy and you put out in your yard and you put on your dashboard and you put in your house and all that little stuff that's for sale that somehow or another will make you feel like you're closer to God if you got all this stuff around, all of a sudden you go, I don't need that stuff because, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm going direct. I'm cutting out the middlemen. What a great program. But also what it does is it gets people upset along the way because they're banking on you buying this stuff. And so all of a sudden lives were being changed and truth was being proclaimed that people didn't want to hear the truth of the gospel because they were losing business because of it. And all of a sudden he said, you know what happened? They were suffered and they were beaten because of it. And if you know anything historically, you know that they were thrown into prison. And that's where he met the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer, as the gates were open, and he thought that Paul and Silas had escaped, and they didn't escape, came to him and said, Men, what must I do to be saved? Saved from what? 
Because he had already learned, because Paul had told him as they sat in prison together, he said, one day God is coming and he's going to judge the world for sin. He's going to judge the world that they turned away from him, that they had gone astray and there's none righteous, no, not one. And because of that, you and your family and everybody around you are going to be judged because of your sins. Not only are you born a sinner, but you sin and you demonstrate you're born a sinner and that your actions demonstrate you're as messed up as God says you are. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice, it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And so all of a sudden, the Philippian jailer's thinking, hey, you know what? The, the gates are open. Paul and Silas must have escaped. And he ran to him and said, oh, you're still here. And he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. And he did. And the God promises they were. And their lives were never the same after that. And so as he was thinking, he said, you know, the first priority of my life is that, you know what? We need to be biblical in our approach to life. You know, think about this. The Apostle Paul, as he preaches the truth of the Word of God, never wavered from preaching that truth even though he was beaten because of it, even though he was persecuted because of it, even though, and then I'm starting to think, you know what, wasn't that interesting? That's a priority that every one of us need to have in our life. We need to be biblical in our thoughts. We need to be biblical in our approach to problems in life. We need to be biblical in our approach to business problems. We need to be biblical in our approach to my relationship with my wife and my children or your husband and your children. We need to be biblical in our approach to our relationship with our neighbors and, and non-Christian friends and people that we work with. We need to be biblical in our approach to life and then not only should we be biblical, but then we also must put that biblical approach and mentality into action. And you know what's fascinating to me, and I want you to stop and think about this for a second. Paul never wavered from the truth. We live in a world filled with people who are hungry and hurting and want to know the truth because they want to be set free from this condition that they have that's called sin. They can't free themselves. They can't stop their habits. Oh, I may stop drinking. I may stop running around. I may stop doing all these things. And I may try, but you know what? We're tended to, we're lured back into it. And even if we can get away from it, the only, the truth of the matter is this. We're still dead in our sins and we're still going to be judged according to God's standard, not our own standard. And so they can't be freed from any of that. And so what Paul said is that, you know what? I don't care whether they beat me, they throw me into prison, they, they, they execute me for it because this truth will set people free. People are hungry for the truth, folks. But don't misunderstand something. People want the truth, and then when you give them the truth, don't be surprised that they don't like what they just heard. Don't be surprised. As Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. People can't handle the truth. The truth is this. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. That is true. Now, you know what? People don't like to hear that. They like to hear, I'm okay, you're okay. That's why we have all these programs, these award ceremonies, all these banquets, so we can honor one another to help each other somehow believe that we're not as crummy as we really are. <laughs> Think about it. Here, let me give you an award. You deserve an award. You're a pretty crummy guy, but if we give you an award for a moment, you're not that bad. We do that all the time. Everybody does it. Every industry does it. And there's, all, there's awards for everything. Try to stop and think about something for a minute. How many different award ceremonies have you seen on TV? I can't even keep track of them anymore. You thought that that was a music award, but no, that was not a music award. It was a variation of a music theme. There's all kind of different music awards for different type of music. There's all kind of awards. Why? We're giving awards to each other so we can all believe that we're okay. Hey, guess what? You're not okay. I'm not okay. We're all messed up. Don't you feel better now? Glad I came. Got that extra hour of sleep? I thought I was doing better, but I'm not. Hey, but we need to understand something. That's the truth. God says you're messed up. And that we need a Savior. We need help. And only God can do it for us. 
And that's why he gave us Jesus Christ to die for our sins. That's good stuff. But you know what? The only place you learn that is in the Bible. We need to become biblically based in our thinking. He never compromised the truth of Scripture in, in order to become more politically correct. Think about it. The world wants truth, but if it hears truth it doesn't like, then we're not tolerant, we're not politically correct. They don't like what they hear, but they want to know the truth. What's fascinating is this. It says, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of, I like this term, the, the phrase that he uses is this, in spite of strong opposition. The New American Standard says, um, the gospel of God amid much opposition. It's an athletic term. I like that. That's why I like it. I'm a sick guy. But I already know that. I just admitted it. I already told you that. But it's an athletic term. The Greek world understood athletic events. Our world and our culture understands athletic contests. We understand what it means to be in an athletic event. And what he's saying here is that Paul often uses to illustrate spiritual truth. He said, hey, it was a battle out there. When I crossed the lines and started preaching the truth of the word of God, man, the other team came out and they opposed what I was doing. It was a battle. But you know what? But it's a battle worth fighting. Because it's the truth that sets people free. He was biblically minded. Everything that he did centered on scripture. It's a battle out there. You want to do what's right at school? It's a battle out there. You want to do what's right in your job? It's a battle out there. You want to do what's right in your community? It's a battle out there. You want to do what's right according to the word of God? It's a battle out there. And when you cross the line, the opposition's coming onto the field and they're going to take you on. But the only difference is that we are on the side that wins. We just got to go out and play the game. But it's going to be a battle. Why? Because the urgent things of life always press for our time and our actions. But the important things of life are what gives us foundation and a solid base and deep roots so we're not swayed by it. Hey, you know what the urgent thing of life is? To go along with the flow. You want to be friends with people who are in opposition to everything that God stands for? It's more important for you to be friends with them. Peer pressure. Think about it. The important things of life. Hey, you know, Adam wanted to get along with Eve, and so Eve said, hey, eat the apple. Adam knew what he was doing was wrong before God, but the urgent pressing matter at the time was, I want to do what's right to please this woman. What did he do? He set aside the important thing to do that which was urgent at the time, and it's been going that way ever since. The urgent thing of life, always pressing us. I know some godly Christian men in business who the urgent problems of their business and the financial constraints that they were under and all the problems that they were in set aside everything that was important according to the Word of God and took things into their own hands and tried to somehow manipulate and contrive a way to resolve their problems because they love money more than they love God. And the Word of God tells us, hey, you know what? And for the love of money, that there will be some of us who wander even from the faith. Wander from even doing what's right before God to do what's right as far as their own eyes is concerned so that they will make some money in the process and they'll get out of this jam that they're in. We need to be biblically, we need to be biblically based in all of our thinking. You know, because when you look at this, why was he that way? It says, for the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. I like that. The truth sets people free. He wasn't blowing smoke at them. He wasn't trying to make them feel good about themselves. He told them the truth of what God had to say. He was a messenger for God. And he said, hey, you know what? Unless you trust in Jesus Christ, that you are going to experience the wrath and the judgment of God which is to come, and I urge you and I beg you to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
They didn't want to hear it. Our culture doesn't want to hear it. Our culture wants to hear that every road somehow leads to heaven. If you want to believe there is one, you can believe whatever you want, and we can be religiously tolerant toward any nonsense that's out there. And as long as we're tolerant toward anything but the truth, then that's okay. We won't offend anybody. That's true. But the problem is the truth's not setting anybody free. The truth isn't going to free any. The truth is going to free people from the judgment of God. Not all this nonsense that we're living. And so the Apostle Paul said this, you know what? I didn't back down from sharing with you the truth because it's only the truth that's going to set people free. I love people enough that I'm going to share them the truth. And if they don't want to hear the truth, that's okay, but I'm accountable to God to share the truth with them. You see what he said? Hey, you know what? On the contrary, we speak as men, what? Approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. What a great term. In 1 Peter, in our study in 1 Peter, the Bible says that we entrust to God our own souls. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're entrusting to God our own souls. We're entrusting or believing or trusting that he can protect us from the wrath to come. Here, God's saying is that, listen, if you are a receiver of the grace of God and you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've received the gospel of God, God has entrusted this valuable piece of information with you and me for the purpose that we then share it with those around us. We need to be biblically minded. Why should we be biblically minded? You know, I was going through thinking, man, you know what? Why be biblically minded? Hey, God promises godly success to those who meditate on the word of God, who don't waver from it, who are careful to do all according that is written in it. God says that if we, we know and meditate on the word of God and have the word of God memorized in our lives, that we'll have deep spiritual roots and we won't be wavering to and fro. We won't be tossed to and fro, fro by every wind or trickery of doctrine that comes along. We'll know what we believe. We can identify and recognize the counterfeit from the truth. So that if we know and understand the word of God and hide that word in our heart, we won't sin against God and do that which is wrong before God. Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that it's the word of God that gives us nourishment to sustain us spiritually. We need to know and understand the word of God because the word of God's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We need to know if where we're standing is the right place or not, or whether we're walking in rebellion against God and the word of God shines a light on where we are and shines a light to where we're supposed to go. The Bible says that all scripture is profitable and, and uh, for, for what? For teaching? for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God adequately equipped to do all the works of righteousness and li- have right living before God. We need to know and understand the Word of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 for a second. Hebrews 4, listen to what God has to say about His Word here. Hebrews chapter 4, we read this. In verses 12 through 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, It's piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We need the Word of God because the Word of God is alive. It's living. It's active. It's penetrating our lives. You know, here's what happens. Here's what usually happens. I'll give you an example. We have people that say, but I want to do what's right before God. I know the answer must be Jesus, so I'll give you the answer, Jesus. But you know what? As we're in the Word of God, the Word of God knows and penetrates our hearts and tells us what what other people around us don't have a clue, and that's this. God knows our thoughts, and God knows our intentions. And you know what happens with people? We tell people what we think they want to hear, all the while planning to do what we still want to do. 
we're having a problem with a creditor or a supplier or whatever, we tell them what we think they want to hear, but the Word of God penetrates our hearts and say, you're lying right now as you're on this phone call. You're lying right now as you talk to this person. We have a problem in our marriage, and I tell my wife what I think she wants to hear. All the while, God knows my heart, and God's saying, you know what? You don't have any intention of following through and doing what you just said. You just lied to her, and God knows your heart because the Word of God penetrates our hearts, and it begins to separate our thoughts from our intentions. Oh, we all have good intentions. God says, I know your thoughts. I know your intentions, and your thoughts and your ways aren't my thoughts and my ways, so you better get into the Word of God to learn how God thinks and what God wants, because we as people don't think like God. We as people don't want to do what God wants us to do. That's why he says you better get into the Word of God for direction, because we don't know which way to go. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And he goes on and says, And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's pretty descriptive, isn't it? The principles and the precepts of Scripture touch what no surgeon's scalpel can ever touch, and that's the soul and the spirit, our thoughts and our attitudes, and God uses truth to help shape us and clean us up. And you know what's interesting is, He also shapes us up so that we can walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. As we wait for Jesus Christ to come back, we, it, God's Word changes our lives, and we do what's right before Him. He deals with every area. Our relationships, our marriages, our businesses, our attitudes toward ourselves and others, our attitudes toward money and material things. Uh, the, The Bible covers it all. So let's take heart for a second and let's determine not to allow the tyranny of the urgent to steal from us those all important moments to be alone with God and in His Word. Isn't it so true that it's the urgent things of life that will keep us from showing up at church? It's the urgent things of life that keep us from going to that small group we made a commitment to be in. It's the urgent pressing things of life that keep us from studying the Bible and doing the homework that was given to us. And we've had two weeks to do it, but we just can't find time to do that one little chapter of eight questions that are asked of us. Why? Because the urgent things of life crowd out the important things. Hey, there is nothing more important in life. Our greatest priority has got to be to become people who spend time in the Word of God. That's the only place that we're going to find success, folks. It's the only place we're going to find direction. It's the only place. And now let me ask you a question. What is really important to you? What is really important to us is where we spend our time. What is really important to us is where we spend our time. If your relationship with God is really important to you, then how much time are you spending with Him in His Word? Isn't that interesting? We need to become people who are committed to be biblically in our, biblically, uh, biblical in our thinking and our approach to life. The second thing that, that's kind of interesting too, he says, because why? We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. The second thing is we need to be real. That's a good priority for us. We need to be real. He says in, in uh, verses 5 and 6, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up. To cover up our greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we weren't. Look at what he's saying. Hey, I love this. He's saying he was real. The man was real. He was so secure in who he was in Christ that he peeled off all the masks, all the cover-up. He stood vulnerable before God and these people. There was no flattery. He didn't blow smoke at him. I like that. You know we never use flattery. Isn't that great? You know what he's saying to them is this. Hey, you know when I was with you, I didn't tell you what I thought you wanted to hear. I wasn't trying to make you like me because I don't care whether you like me. 
I have said that to you people for years. And I'm going to continue to say it. Why? Because this isn't what it's about. What we're here to do is we're here to learn the truth of the Word of God. This is what God has to say. I don't care whether you like me or not. I'm not going to go out of my way, although some of you think I do, so that you don't like me, but I'm just going to tell you the way it is. He said, hey, I didn't have any mask, I had no cover-up. And see what they were doing, they were accusing Paul of coming into town and being basically a religious charlatan that would just take money from them. And he was just one of the guys that were just, he was, he was a pretender. He wasn't there to tell them the truth. And so they accused him of just coming to town. Hey, the guy was a liar. He was a phony. He just came to town to make money off of you people. And then he was going to run to the next city and make money off of them. He said, hey, you know what? I was not a phony. I didn't wear a mask. I was sincere. I was without wax is what the term meant. And it meant that when you had sculpture or pottery and things like that that were cracked or blemished, they would take wax and fill the wax in. And as you looked at it, you didn't know that it was not you know, a complete work. But as you held it up to the light to examine it, and as the light shined upon it, it would begin to melt the wax, and the wax would melt. And so as our lives are examined before the light of God, we can stand before people and say, hey, you know what? What you see is what you get. Paul was genuine. We need to be genuine. He wasn't a phony. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't an imitation. He was the real thing. You know, and as I looked at this passage, this passage has always been a model for my, myself and my family. Because as we've been involved in ministry and working with other people, one of the things that we've always wanted to do was eliminate any way that anyone could discredit what we're trying to do in serving God. And the quickest way anybody tries to discredit a person is this. They're just in it for themselves. We have never served with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. When we've worked with professional athletes, the thing that blew people away was, you know what, their first question was kind of like, why are you doing this? Because God's given me a message to share with you. I've received the message. I'm a transmitter. I'm here to tell you the truth of the word of God. That's the only reason I'm here. Because God has opened the door for me to be here. Hey, you want tickets? I don't want tickets. And that was hard to say when the Rams were actually in the playoffs. <laughs> Got easier after a while. but <laughs> It's like, I know, we're really busy today. But you want tickets? No. You want paid? No. Your wife's going to babysit? Your kids are going to babysit? Yeah. Why? Because we serve God. And that example of service, people can't say anything to it. You can't say anything to that other than, thank you, I think. They don't know what to do. I've taught here for 15 years. I never got paid. I never got paid a dime, and I don't want to get paid. That's not why I do what I do. Because I don't want somebody to come and say the only reason he does it is because he's getting something out of it. We sell tapes. Linda works hard every week to get tapes ready to go out. Why? Because they're the word of God. Let me just explain something real clear. Larry made a couple of jokes about it, but this is a very serious thing. There are people in this church who work hard in the tape ministry that don't get paid a dime to do it. Why? So they can put tape orders together so that the truth of the word of God can be sent to people that you care about and you want to hear that. I do not get paid a penny. I don't get any money from that. I get nothing from it, never wanted any, nor do I want any in the future. What, what's the only motivation to do it? Because the word of God is sent forth. See, that's what Paul said. Hey, what you see is what you get. And if you don't think who I am is who I really am, then I invite you to follow me home. Amen. Not you. <laughs> Anybody else, not you. 
And if that's not as real as you can get, I don't know what is. <clears throat> but what's the point? The point is this. Listen to me, please. We need more people who are real in a world that doesn't see reality very often. The world we live in is an illusion. What you see isn't close to being what it is. We need to be real with people. I'm not perfect. I've got my flaws. But you know what's wonderful? Is that that has nothing to do with who I am in Christ. Jesus did it all. And I believe that with my heart. And I've given him my soul. But I'll tell you this. It's not an excuse for me either to sit and say, you know what, but that's just the way I am. That's the way I grew up. That's the way my family was. That's just the way I am. That's not an excuse at all. But what I want to be is real to people so that they can see that, you know what, God deals with real people in real issues in real ways and provides real solutions. I am not perfect. And I'm not going to come off to people around me in business and other ways. When people get me upset, I struggle with letting them know how I think about it. When people don't pay their bills, I struggle with letting them know, I'm going to send Nunzio after you. You know what I mean? Uh, There's just different ways to collect money. I struggle with all of these things. But you know what? I'm not content to to be at that point because he who began a good and work in me when I accepted Jesus Christ will continue it until the day that what? Jesus comes again. See, I want people around me to see that I'm a real person with real problems and real needs, but that we also have a God that's provided real solutions. Stop being a phony Christian. Stop wearing a mask so you only let people see what you want them to see. Let them see who you are. Blemishes, pimples and all. And then let them see the God that you've put your trust in to see that He will bring you through situations in life. We need to be real in a world that isn't real. We need to be real with people that need to know that we're real. People that know me today, they don't understand who I was 20 years ago. They think I've always been this way. They don't understand. They don't understand that where they are today is where I used to be. But Jesus Christ can make a difference in their life. We need to be real. Paul was real. And this is what he said. He goes, you know what? I could have been a burden to them. I could have asked them for money. I could have made them pay my way. But I didn't do any of that. And the reason I didn't do any of it was because I didn't want them to disqualify what I I had to say, the truth of the Word of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing, to be real to people? Um, Let's go. Okay, we need to be gentle. We need to be gentle. But we are gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much that we are delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to you. Not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. You notice what he said? Hey, we were gentle among you. What a great priority to incorporate in our own lives. We need to become people who are gentle in our approach toward other people. And that will be challenged every day. I don't know if you noticed, but we live in a pretty harsh world. I spent the day thinking about this point, standing in line at the L.A. County Recorder's Office to record a construction document. And I looked around me, and this mass of humanity, they were the ugliest, meanest group of people that you ever got stuck with in a line. They were mean. These people were mean. They were standing in line. The guy in front of me did this. Just like some of you. He did this. He did this. He pays back and forth. People would say, next. Go up next. Wrong line. What do you mean wrong line? I asked before. I got in the line. of the right line. I got in line. I stood here 40 minutes. Now you're telling me it's the wrong line. Go to the second floor. What do you mean go to the second floor? They're screaming and yelling at each other. Everybody's in line like this. 
I better not be in the wrong line. <laughs> and people were mean. We live in a mean, harsh world. Drive down a freeway. Look at the person next to you. Don't stare too long. You might get, you know, you might get shot. People are mean. We live in a harsh world. And you know what? Paul says, but you know what? We need to be as God's people. We need to be gentle in our approach to other people. We need to be gentle. Look what he said. Hey, we're gentle like a mother caring for her little children. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Like a mother caring for her little children. Now, I know moms, you get upset. But you know what? As our children are little, it's a lot easier to have patience with them, even though they demand a lot more of our time. Why are we more patient with them? Because we know they don't know any better. I have very little patience for teenagers and older people. I don't, because by now you should know. We've gone through this, you should know, it's a done deal. Now you, little one, little grandson, Luke, <laughs> you little perfect little guy, he doesn't know any better. So we kind of go through, you know, we're doing different things there. But there's going to come a point in time where you go, hey, you know what, that's it, you know better. Now see, what's interesting is this. Paul said this about new believers. Hey, you know what, we need to be gentle with non-Christians, and we need to be gentle with new Christians. Why? Because they don't know any better. They don't know any better. I was thinking about that. I was out for a run this morning. Had an extra hour, so I thought I'd go for a run before church. So I'm out for a run, and somebody stops and asks me for directions. The person was lost. Now, how would you respond to a person that's lost? I was thinking, here's the way most Christians respond to those who are lost in the world we live in. What are you, stupid? (laughs) What's wrong with you? Don't you know that what you're doing is wrong? That's so stupid. What are you doing that for? Could you imagine somebody's asking for directions and I'm running, I stop next to them, they say, hi, I'm sorry, can you show me how to get to the street? And you look at them and say, what are you, an idiot? Why don't you know? You should know. No, what do you do? You gently walk them through it. If you go down to that stop sign, you make a left, and then you make a right. Hold on a second. I hate when they stop me when I'm running, I take a deep breath, and I go back and finish the direction. But we're gentle with them. Why are we gentle with them? Because they were lost and they don't know where they're going. How many of us are not that gracious when it comes to non-Christian friends, family, relatives, and people that we work with. We look at them with disgust and say, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you? You should know better. Let me give you a challenge. The holidays are, are around the corner. Here's a thought for you. Why don't you try being gentle and gracious with the people God brings into your life instead of screaming and yelling at them and shoving Christianity down their throat? Why don't you try to be gentle to them? I try to be gracious to them. You know why? Because they are lost and they don't know where they're going. They need direction. Some of the most ungracious, I don't even know, is that a word? Some of the harshest people that I know are Christians. They have no tolerance for those who aren't Christians. They have no tolerance for those who are young Christians. You would think that the older we get, the more sensitive we'd be about helping people and walking them through their faith. But some of the older, older, more mature Christians are some of the harshest people I've ever met. They're crabby and cranky and nasty. And what do you mean you don't know that by now? And don't you know that if you don't go to church on Sunday nights, you're going to hell? You know? And it's like, why? Because we always did. But wait a minute. What does the Bible say? We need to be biblical in our approach. But we, you know, we also need to be gentle in how we deal with other people. We need to be gracious. That's a challenge for you. As a nursing mother, as a father, provides and protects. That's what we need to be. And then the last thing is this, and that we also need to be relevant. The Word of God is relevant. You know, the Word of God is timeless. As the Word of God went through, goes forth today, it's going to change hearts as it always has for centuries and centuries. The Word of God is relevant. But you and I need to be relevant in our approach to get people to listen to the truth of the Word of God.
encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom of glory. And we also, act, we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. There is always a direct link between our walk and our talk. The Bible, when received, even though it's written long ago, goes to work today. Why? Because we already learned it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God goes forth and never comes back empty. The Word of God changes hearts and lives. And you know what? We need to be relevant in our approach to share that with other people, but we need to also understand something. You know what? The Word of God will never be outdated. God help us to become people who are sold on the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. That's all that we have to offer a world that is lost and looking for direction. We don't need programs. We don't need this, that, and the other thing. We just need to teach the Word of God to people because God promises when His Word goes out that it never comes back empty. We need to be sold on the Word of God. I like what these people proclaim the Word of God. I like what one man wrote. He said this, He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that's where he died and that's what he died about. And that's where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. I love that. I got a t-shirt from friends of ours from Hawaii. And uh, and in Hawaiian, Romans 1.16 is on the back of the t-shirt. And it says it's from from Buddha Paul. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it's written in Hawaiian, but it's, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it was fascinating to read it in Pigeon Hawaiian and from Buddha Paul and realize that, you know what? The Word of God is relevant in every culture and in every tongue and in every language and in every race, creed, color. The Word of God is relevant to mankind today. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I hope that you're not either because it is the only power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need people who get our priorities in order. Let me ask you again as we close. Don't allow the tyranny of the urgent to crowd out that which is important. We need to be biblically based in our thinking and in our actions. We need to be real people who apply the truth of the scripture as God convicts our hearts and gives us direction. We need to be gentle and gracious in our approach to those who are lost and looking for direction. Wouldn't it have been been an ugly scene if when Philip said to Jesus, hey, how, how do we know how to get to the Father? that Jesus in John 14 would have turned to him and said, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand anything? If you don't know by now, I'm not going to tell you. I'm so glad that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but through me. I'm glad he was gracious in his response as he answered the question that Philip asked him. We need to be gentle and develop a compassionate attitude, and we need to be relevant. We need to stay current and up-to-date on how to reach people with the most important message that they'll ever hear. That's God loved them and sent his son to die for their sins. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me ask you one last time. What's really important to you? Because what's really important to you is where you're going to spend your time. What's really important to you 
is where you're going to take action. I hope these things become important to you because they're important to God. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We just pray that we will apply the word as we've heard it, that we'll be receivers and transmitters. And God, we just thank you that it's your truth that sets us free, that it's your word that is all that we have to offer. We thank you that Paul was a man who was not committed to be a crowd pleaser, but to be a God pleaser. He was a man that was not politically correct, but he did offer truth. And the truth is what sets people free. God, we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, as you're leaving...